Hello and welcome to The Mindful Isle, a podcast where we have conversations with doers, makers and thinkers from all corners of Tasmania, talking all things slow living, ethical business, sustainability and fostering community connection. I'm your host, Daisy Baker. In today's episode, you'll meet Simon McInerney, a freelance butler based in Northern Tasmania. He's been working in the service industry for many years, working in high-class establishments throughout Australia and abroad. In this conversation, he reflects on how he became a butler, his eight years working in the UK, and the choice to return to Tasmania. Here's Simon. Welcome to the Mindful Isle, Simon. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thanks, Daisy. Let's kick off with a couple of quick-fire questions. So, start off with, how would you describe Tassie living in one sentence? Look, I think primarily it's lifestyle. Um, it's, it's the benefit of so many things, um, yet in such an isolated space. I like it. What are some of your favourite ways to integrate mindfulness into your day? Oh, look, I mean, for me, um, and particularly in and around Tasmania, I think one of the great benefits of, of such a small state, but also with small population, is access to wilderness. Um, and for me, I guess, growing up, one of the, the major areas that, that we sort of, as a family, when I was a child, visited was sort of all under the Great Western Tiers. Um, and there's so much walking to be done out there. And and you can still, I guess, one of the treasures of, of Tasmania is that you can still go to those places, those walks that I took as a child. Um, and you can just completely immerse yourself. And if you see two or three people, you know, for six or eight hours of, of, of walking, then that's a busy day by Tasmanian standards. So, um, yeah, that for me is is where I'm at. If I need a break, if, if you know, the head's foggy and, and everything's too busy, um, for me, I, I jump into the wilderness. And, and it's not massive adventure. It's not overland tracks every weekend sort of thing. It's it's walks that are four to six hours that you can complete in a day. And, and uh, yeah, you come back totally refreshed. We're incredibly lucky, aren't we, to have that on our doorstep. Oh, look, I mean, it, it's it's only just being um, really appreciated, I think. Um, and again, in growing up, if you're born here and, and raised here, you take it for granted. It's as simple as that. You assume that this is the broader norm. Um, and I, I think one of the benefits in actual fact of leaving the state and adventuring beyond the state is coming back with such a greater appreciation for, for what we do actually have. Yeah, and I guess you're coming back and seeing everything through fresh eyes as well with you, your new experience. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I spent time nearly eight years in the UK and, and quite a few years interstate. Um, and there, there are beautiful parts of the world to explore. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, I think our real treasure is 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 just how isolated Tasmania is. You know, it really is genuinely in the middle of nowhere. And that limits the amount of access to it in, in some respects. Um, so, yeah, when you do come back, you relish, I guess, in some ways, that small population. There, there can be negatives to, to small population. But, um, yeah, on the whole, just knowing that on any given day, you can, you can escape really quite easily. Mm. 
We're very lucky. Let's turn now to your career. So you spent most of your, your working life in the service industry. What was it that, that drew you to this line of work in the first place? Oh, look, I mean, it was more by chance. It was leaving year 12 and going, I have no idea what I'm going to do in life. Um, and so it was falling into hospitality rather than actively seeking out hospitality. My, my family background is not at all um, hospitality related. In fact, I'm probably sort of a first generation in our, in our family. And from there, it's just flourished in the sense of the diversity of the industry, what it has to offer, um, you know, the, the elements of, of hospitality and service are so broad. Um, and the whole journey in actual fact has, has been more accidental than intentional. So would you like to talk us through maybe some of the, the first jobs that you had that led you on to then travelling around Australia and working in some really high-class hotels? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first, my sort of traineeship, my, my initial job into hospitality was what was the Great Northern Hotel on Earl Street. I think it's a travel lodge these days, just around from the Princess Theatre in Launceston. Um, and yeah, so as, as a trainee sort of role, it was all elements of, of hotel. Um, and it was just a three, four star hotel. Um, but soon after that, the, I suppose, the urge to travel hit um, for no real reason other than there's a big wide world out there um, and ended up with my partner um, in Western Australia in Perth um, and fell into the Hilton Hotel Group, which I guess is a fairly renowned five-star hotel um, group on a, on a world scale. Uh, and that's, I guess, where that really sort of foundation of, of five-star kind of service began. Um, I worked with some incredible people there um, and I still remember, you know, the, the bars manager there, Chris Paul, as his name is, and he may be close to retirement age now, but he was a gentleman who had a standard of service that was just extraordinary. And it was all about the guest who walked in the door, nothing else mattered. Um, and that really sort of created a foundation for me. And he was a real inspiration, I guess, in the early days of, of looking after people. Um, yeah, and then uh, we travelled sort of in and around Australia um, to Uluru, um, to the resort out there. That was a whole different ball game again, completely about international tourism. Um, fascinating place. Um, and then back and forth to Tasmania quite a few times. And then, then an opportunity came up um, to work in the UK um, in a castle of all things. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. It sounds like that was you know, would have been quite an incredible opportunity at the time. Tell us a bit more about that job and how that all came about. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, once again, it was, it was purely chance. It was time at Uluru um, at the resort there. We met uh, an amazing couple, Kelly and Shani. Um, and Shani was from the UK herself um, and Kelly Australian. And um, by chance, um, Shani was a chef and one of her best mates um, was the head chef at Highclere Castle. Um, so they actually spent some time over there working uh, and then Kelly with I think it was because of Australian residency um, couldn't work any any longer beyond two years uh, and so they returned to, to Australia and conveniently gave us a call we'd, um, we'd um, sort of built up a really good friendship uh, back at The Rock and yeah so had an interview over the phone 
and before we knew it, uh, we were heading to the UK to, to manage the castle. What was that like going over there? What, what was that experience like? I think it's, it, it, it's a really interesting aspect of, of the world because it's fairy tale England. Like it's not, you're, you're going into, you know, well, today it is most famously a movie set. You look at um, the, the, the TV series Downton Abbey uh, and that is the, the facility that is Highclere Castle. And it's, it's quite extraordinary in, in, for me, it was the historical aspect of it that most got me. Um, and when you're first arriving into London and, and Heathrow Airport and I mean, I just had not really any expectations other than I thought London was this massive sprawling city that just continued for, you know, for miles and miles and miles. And it does to a certain extent, but the M25, which is the ring road around London, um, you leave that and you're out on the highway and all of a sudden you are literally in these rolling hills and for such a massive population it is so confined and so um it was extraordinary to to leave london from from the airport and then within an hour and a half you're in the countryside um once again in this sort of extraordinary fairy tale kind of image where you're driving over these rolling hills and seeing the the tip of the castle that you're about to 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 work in um and then it's all sort of um you know, appears in front of you and that design is actually very intentional of its of its era that that sort of victorian era um is very much about going up and down hills so you're getting a glimpse of an extraordinary building and then all of a sudden it's on show for you um you know whereas i think you know previous to that there was a separate entrance and so pre-victorian times it was all about straight long driveways and so even in massive buildings, in, in massive historical facilities, you changed and adapted based on trends. And those trends were the monarch of the day. And it's so interesting, isn't it, when we look at that and how, I guess, the monarchy still kind of filters down to today and some of the, those cultural practices are still very much part of English lifestyle. You know, the, the fact of having a butler in itself Yes. It's a very old fashioned concept. Oh, absolutely. It's a very, um, you know, and once again, it was something that I fell into very accidentally, but absolutely love doing. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's historically, you know, I suppose where I was at, at Highclere, you know, you had a family and it wasn't unique to them. There's, there's multitudes of families who for many generations have relied on household staff. Uh, and it's just part and parcel of, of their daily routine. Um, it's uh, an exceptional level of privilege um, for, for those people. Um, it's, it, it's still, I find it really quite unusual because it's, it's not something that I personally actually aspire to at all. The, the more I've worked in these environments with, with uh, I guess, you know, there's no other way to say it with people with, with great wealth. Um, you look at the lifestyle that is led and how busy it is. Um, and I have absolutely zero aspiration to be that person. Um, but I enjoy the work. I love that. And, but I'm not, for me, um, I don't care who I work for in some respects, you know, it could be in a local cafe and someone's having a special occasion. You give them the same level of attention and, and service as I do, 
you know, in a private household in, in someone's place, whether it be here in Tasmania or in Sydney or wherever uh, I'm on call for. I think a lot of people's understanding of a butler would be, as we were discussing earlier, that on-screen kind of image that we've fed through movies and TV shows. What does the role of a butler actually look like? It's, and again, it's probably a bit crass, but we talk about it as old money and new money. And the notion of old money, I suppose, historically aristocratic type families, where I was at at Highclere, um, you know, it is very traditional. It is very formal. Um, there is very definitive roles. There's hierarchy within the, the, the staff um, versus, you know, new money or, or people who have, have gathered wealth in, in, you know, one in the past one or two generations. Um, those people can be quite more self-sufficient at one stage in their life they've had to you know butter their own bread kind of thing so they know how to make toast um, so <laughs> yeah it, it's it's a really diverse role um, you will see in some circumstances that quite often you're a personal assistant as well so you're planning you know the host family that you work for or whatever else wants to go on holiday so you're doing the organization the preparation of holidays Depending on the size of the family and property, you may be do, doing some cooking. There may be a private chef employed as well. Um, so it's probably easier to sort of say, what don't you do? Um, and you essentially don't do much outside of the household um, in the sense of, if you think about what you do on your daily routine or weekly routine of, of living at home, making sure you know you've done the washing the laundry um you know cooked meals all that kind of stuff that's effectively what a butler or house manager is is doing for a family you're you know they are menial tasks at times but you are ensuring that every single thing within a household is done for that client and or and or family um to ensure that their day is uninterrupted as possible so that they can get on with their schedule without having to worry about yeah the small stuff and so are you then living in with them 24 7 uh, once again it depends on the role um so uh, when i was at highclere yes i lived in an apartment with my wife and we were the only ones that physically lived in the castle full time so the family um lived in a house not far away and then would come in to Highclere for, for special occasions. So yeah, so I mean, I was first port of call if an alarm went off, anything security related, that was me first and foremost. The next role I took in the UK, um, which was a couple's role, so myself and my wife, both hospitality background, we both worked to, together full time in that household. Um, the stables had been converted. So we lived in an adjacent um, property to the house um, and that was a weekend property so the couple lived in London um, and essentially they would arrive Friday afternoon um, and stay through till, till Sunday evening and during that time that was basically you know you're on call pretty much as much as you'd get a few hours sleep um, that was their weekend residence um, they liked to entertain uh, so yeah you you were whilst they're awake, you're awake. Um, and in the mornings, you're obviously waking up and preparing the house before anyone else is awake. So yeah, sort of Friday night, Saturday night was, was four hours sleep, five hours sleep kind of thing, <laughs> um, just preparing. And then 
you're midweek, you'd have a couple of days off and then it's preparing and turning the house around. So I guess you could look at as a sort of almost a similarity would be like running a small hotel or, you know, a B&B with, with eight or 10 guest rooms kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's the idea of a butler slash house manager. Um, there's, there's probably 50, 60 different ways that can progress in the sense of dependent on, on what the household requires. It's just like something of a, of another world, isn't it? It's almost hard to imagine. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's, it does happen in Australia. Um, obviously places like Sydney and Melbourne where you've got much bigger population, um, you've got different scale of economy and, and um, business interests and that sort of thing. I still find it really odd when I go to work for people. It's a really odd concept. It's still hospitality. Um, I would argue that most people in the hospitality industry with a basic background of, of um, service could actually step into the role and before too long um, grasp what it's at. It's just the basic thing I, I guess is, is it's, it's about a particular level of standard um, and you cannot drop that standard. There's, there's an expectation in a household. Um, it's also really, it can be awkward for, for guests. So you, you might be a guest of, of someone who's really wealthy. So you turn up and go, right, well, I'm staying at these people's house for a weekend. The household, the family are really used to stuff around them. But you turn up and you think, right, well, I'll put the kettle on. It's like, no, no, that's my job. You know, your, job, <laughs> your task as a guest is to ask for a cup of tea. It's not to make the cup of tea. So there's, there's a whole lot of dynamics there. You have to, um, you know, my role is to make people comfortable. It's as simple as that. And it's easy to make the household, star, uh, household family comfortable because you're in and around them on a constant basis. Quite often it's actually the guests and yourself that the initial interaction, you've got to work out who they are, what they do and don't like. Um, and also get them just to sit down and go, you don't have to do anything. That's what I'm here for. And so now you've since moved back to Tasmania yep. and you're working as a freelance butler and you've got a few other things up in the air that we'll discuss shortly. But how does that role of a, a butler in Australia compare to that in the UK? I think I sort of touched on it where the idea of, of being capable of doing things yourself versus not incapable, but never having had to do them in, in, if you're, you know, if, if you're an aristocratic family that a title is passed on um, generation after generation, you're looking at households where, you know, for five, six, seven, eight generations, there has been staff in the household looking after every thing that you do you know they've never picked up an iron they've never picked up anything relating to, to cleaning or, or household duties they've not boiled an egg there has been someone there and so they're actually fairly fundamentally reliant on getting their nutrition and and, and daily um you know i guess drive to to get through the day on their personal side of things they're fundamentally reliant on someone to do that for them in australia even you know some of the the incredibly wealthy households that i've worked in there's still a self-sufficiency there there's still a capacity to to yeah put toast in the toast or bread in the the, the toaster and um that's interesting that dynamic um because you do have that situation where you almost have to 
tell people you've hired me for this role. Now you go and do what you need to do and I'll do what I do. Um, you'll be absolutely fine and I'll be absolutely fine. Um, so yeah, so it's a really different dynamic, although, you know, we are beginning to see now an element in Australia that, that through multiple generations, um, the household staff is the norm for some people. And so what was it that led you back to Tasmania? I think in part, well, in part it was family. So we had two children in, uh, in the UK and, you know, this is where it becomes quite difficult, I suppose, in, in the sense of when you do that butler slash household role, um, you know, your, the family that you work for, for is first and foremost, not your own family. So once you start a family of your own, you have to start making sort of um, decisions in and around who you commit to. Um, and it worked for us up until a point where probably our, our uh, eldest child, he started school. And then you sort of start to go, oh, hang on, we've got to work all weekend looking after the family that we work for. Uh, and then we've got a child in school who's at school all week. Um, so you, the time frame that you have with family, your own family, diminishes massively. Um, and that was probably the major aspect of it. Um, our second child, um, when she was born, we had another 18 months, I think it was, before we turned, returned. And the idea was to probably return to Melbourne or Sydney to do what we were doing, but it was a realisation that, that um, it wasn't going to work as a full-time concept. Um, so yeah, then, then Tasmania fell back into place. And so that sort of leads us to where you are now. You're working partly as a freelance butler and then you've got two other businesses on the side. So there's Concierge Tasmania yep. and then Tea and Etiquette. Yep. Would you like to tell us a bit about those and, and how you came to be running those? I mean, they, they, they tie in really nicely with the work that you've been doing all along. And I guess they're two different aspects of that. Oh, absolutely. And, and to me, it's, I guess... One thing, I guess, the, the comparison, when you look at, if you have a special occasion, quite often you sort of, and you know, for me, I suppose my background and, and hospitality and all that sort of thing, um, I enjoy a glass of wine, but I also every now and then think, well, that's an amazing wine, but it's really quite expensive. And it might be, a, let's say it's a hundred dollar bottle of wine. That's not my daily or weekly bottle of wine. That's something that you look to and go right well i have to save up for that or i'll hold on to that for a special occasion and when you sort of then transpose that into it might be you know a couple having a special occasion in a restaurant they're the people that i actually most enjoy looking after who's really saved up for a special occasion it's not the people that can necessarily afford a hundred dollar bottle of wine every day of the week you know that's just their norm um when you've got people who come into an environment that go, this is an occasion, it's your job to make that occasion. Um, and that is the thrill element for me. Um, and so I guess the, the business ideas that, that I've come around with and, and tea and etiquette is, is that kind of notion. It's, it's basically a, an afternoon tea. Some people like to refer it to it as a high tea, but it's me, I guess, as a butler in, uh, traditional sort of modern sense coming into someone's home group of friends four or five people up to ten people kind of thing uh and i turn up with the fine china and and the tea leaves and all that sort of thing and and um you know all the pastries and and whatever else and you can have 
an hour and a half, two hours of, I guess, a really special occasion in the comfort of your own home. So you can have a very, uh, you know, a window into what household service is like. Um, and that's really fun. That's giving people that, that kind of idea of, of a really special occasion is, is um, the, the TN etiquette side of things. And then you can talk about, I guess, the, you know, some of the histories of, of, of manners and, and, and etiquette. Um, and I put a very modern slant on it. I think, you know, some of the, the, the traditional etiquette ideas and some of the traditional butler ideas even um, that are very gender driven, what men can do and what women can do are just absolute rubbish in this day and age. Um, but it's still out there. It's still a component of, of what the industry is. Um, and then the concierge side of things is pretty much on the back burner because we don't have any tourists, but, um, you know, with, with coronavirus and all that sort of thing. But essentially that's a, a one hour, you know, guide for, for people to arrive into Tasmania. And we literally sit down and have a cup of, cup of coffee as, as you arrive in, in a local cafe. Because it, it's amazing how many people come to Tasmania as a holiday destination with virtually zero plans. They sort of go, oh, Frasenade, Cradle Mountain, haven't booked anything, um, don't know where anything is locally really. Although we've got so much access to information with, with the internet, very few people turning up to Tasmania have actually made significant plans on their travels. Um, and one of my other jobs, I guess, is, is with Delamere Vineyard in, in Piper's River in the, the Tamer Valley. And that's where that idea came about because in fact, I was working on the cellar door, um, people are tasting wines and they're literally getting off um, the spirit of Tasmania and driving from Devonport down to the East Coast, there's a winery and they stop in for a tasting and you say to them, oh, what's your plan for, for your trip? Oh, no idea yet. <laughs> so you actually become a tour guide above and beyond um, someone, you know, giving out wine, wine to taste. So yeah, that, that's how that sort of developed was, was purely through um, recognizing how few people have, have made plans. And I think, you know, from a tourist perspective, that would be so valuable too, because the kind of experiences, you know, that you get that are recommended by locals are completely different to, you know, some of the, the big touristy things that you would see in, in guidebooks and that kind of thing, you, you might miss out on some really special experiences. Oh, absolutely, without a doubt. And I mean, that's one of the interesting things about Tasmania still, there are still hidden gems. There's, there's still a lot of places that, you know, they're on page eight of your Google search. They're not front and centre. Um, and so, you know, giving that experience, giving that local knowledge, it's a huge benefit to people. And I mean, one of the significant things, and, and I mean, Delamere is not far from, from Bridport and the majority of people are going to the East Coast for the, you know, the Bay of Fires sort of as a destination. Um, you know, most people were turning up going, oh, it's just half an hour down the road. And it's like, no, you've got another two, two and a half hours of, of driving ahead of you. Um, and there's so little understanding of, of our windy roads. And, um, you know, in Tasmania, you never say to someone, you know, that's 50 kilometers away. You say it's half an hour. You say it's an hour drive. I, I don't have any grasp of, of distance in Tasmania. It's all about time. Um, and I think you've got a lot of people from Sydney and Melbourne or whatever else who just assume you're getting on a highway 
and you're doing 100 kilometers an hour and so that will only be a half hour journey yes the signposts say you can do 80 to 100 kilometers an hour um, but the windy roads you're more likely doing 60 and so it's all those little things that um change a holiday for for people um, and that concierge tasmania idea is is really about giving local knowledge and maximizing what people can can do with their with their time in tasmania what are some of your favorite recommendations of i guess unsung you know attractions that people can experience while they're here yeah i mean for me i guess you know cradle mountain is 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 a massive destination for for visitors and and many of those are departing from launceston but there's there's probably half a dozen different ways that you can get from launceston to to cradle um, and you can make a day of it in the sense of um i guess and i think it's still operating um, there was a website which was the cradle to coast tasting trail so you could basically leave launceston and make your way to cradle mountain and look at as a food and gourmet journey um, and that website lists all the little boutique breweries, cheese producers or whatever through that journey. Um, you can go the back roads and, and which is the way I like to go. Um, and then you can take your way out through Mole Creek, the caves. Um, there's one of my favorite little destinations and it's only a one hour walk um, just out of Chudley. It's called Westmoreland Falls. Um, that's, you know, it, it's, I guess, once again, from a family perspective, if you're traveling, you want to see a bit of wilderness, you've got younger kids who, you know, a four to six hour walk is, is not on the cards. Um, Westmoreland Falls is, is just a really beautiful little walk um, that can be achieved by, you know, most age groups. Um, just around the corner from that, uh, you've got um, Tulumpunga is, is its Aboriginal name or Alum Cliffs. Um, and that, once again, 20 minute walk, um, you're getting, incredible wilderness you're getting actually some aboriginal history um, which is probably one of my frustrations in tasmania is that we don't often look pre 220 years ago sort of thing um, it's an incredible space and and the cliffs themselves are just stunning um, you know and i guess you can then go on to there's, there's another area called De devil's gullet um, which is is out the back of of Deloraine again um, World World Heritage Area. Um, it's about a 15 minute walk. Um, one of the interesting things for me with Devil's Gullet is, I guess you look at the history and this is a bit political, but the history of, of the timber industry and, and the fighting over what we can and can't cut down. And you go up to Devil's Gullet and you can see this, just this extraordinary wilderness on one side, which is World Heritage. And then you can see the swathes of, of of trees all cut down where that world heritage stops um, and it gives you i guess both sides of the, the story um, i would argue for the world heritage side of things obviously um, but you know once again it's 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 an incredible destination and from devil's gullet you can see cradle mountain you can see this time of year you could go up there and you could see the snow-capped cradle mountain in the distance and and see that as your destination um, so yeah, and then a, a really favourite walk of mine, which is a bit longer walk, is Mother Cummings Peak. Um, and once again, the last time I did it, um, I saw two people at, at the outset of the walk and that was it. You know, I had six hours of, of me, myself and I, and just ridiculous wilderness to, um, to explore. 
think a lot of locals could even benefit with that hour chat with you to plan a bit <laughs> of an itinerary for exploring their own backyard. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, you know, even down here in, in the Tamer, um, you know, from a wine point of view, um, you know, there's, there's so much within an hour, um, journey, um, uh, Probably well. Another one that I didn't mention that that I reckon is probably one of the most underrated national parks is is Narantapu National Park, which was the former Asbestos Range National Park. Um, went there two uh, two weeks ago, um, and what was actually interesting about that was that is a place that was being explored by the locals. It was it was interesting to see in the depths of winter how many people were, you know, who at the moment we can't travel realistically, um, who were making the most of of um, that that area and it's it's just beautiful coastline and um, there's a walk that takes you up to what, what is called Archer's Knob and then you can come back along Baker's Beach and it's it's depending on how fast or slow you want to take it's about a four-hour walk um, through sort of coastal bush and then strolling along a beach for an hour and a half just you know looking at what's been been washed up on on the shore and um, you know the seashells the kids love all that um, there's a lot of shark eggs, interestingly, that, that wash up on that beach. Um, so yeah, all that sort of stuff is, is, to me, is quite fascinating. Yeah, we're so, so lucky to have everything like this. Just, you know, a couple of hours drive away. Nothing's too far. A final question for you, Simon, to wrap things up. What do you hope Tasmania will look like in five years' time? Look, and this might be slightly controversial, but I would actually like to see a slightly bigger population. Um, I think we can really benefit from um, where I, I, I mentioned earlier, um, there's pros and cons to, to a small population and uh, Tasmania can be a bit insular and that is definitely changing. Um, I really appreciate that, I guess, for me, you hear some traditional business ideas of, of how do we keep our young people in Tasmania? And that really makes me cringe because if I hadn't left the state, I wouldn't have appreciated what I know today. And it also enabled me to get ideas and experience that I would never get in, in Tasmania. Um, and I brought those ideas back. And so what I would like to see over the next five years is, is young people as and when the opportunity arises, get out, explore the world and bring those ideas back. And, you know, I think you're actually seeing the beginnings of that, particularly in the, in the food industry, um, agriculture and, and particularly the wine industry. Um, you're seeing, you know, a lot of Tasmania's wine industry is made up of winemakers who are not from Tasmania. They've come from interstate or overseas and they've recognised the quality of fruit that can be grown, of wine that can be made. And that's why they're turning up. We should absolutely encourage all those people um, to turn up here to diversify our product, um, to, to be able to expand on already a great base of, of incredible, incredible food, wine and, and produce. Um, you know, so yeah, a slightly higher population through, through people coming back, coming in, um, but at the same time, I still want to go and have my bush walk where I only see two people. So um, that's the selfish side of things. Um, <clears throat> I think the future of Tasmania above and beyond five years is it's, we have to have a mindset of quality over quantity. That's, that's what Tasmania is about. We've, 
you know, we've got some of the best, we literally have some of the best produce in the world. There's no doubt about that. And, and I guess from a, a wine point of view, you know, Tasmania produces less than 1% of Australia's wine in, you know, in the country. It's a tiny, tiny industry. You then magnify that to a world scale. And the reality is, is that you can go into New York now, you can go into London, into a wine shop, and you will see Tasmanian wine in those wine shops. You know, that is extraordinary. You know, it's, 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 it's a micro, micro industry, but it's massive in its quality. Um, and that's how I'd like to see sort of Tasmania continuing into the future is, is really focusing on its quality. Um, and particularly the local population are just understanding and grasping how good we've got it in the sense of, of, of quality produce and, and, and livestock. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Simon. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk today. A pleasure. Thanks, Daisy. Thank you so much for listening in to this episode of The Mindful Isle. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Simon as much as I enjoyed talking to him. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Music or hit follow on Spotify so you never miss an episode. I'll be back in your ears next Wednesday with another conversation about conscious living in Tasmania.